dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series. You're listening to Podcast Winterfell. Welcome back to Podcast Winterfell. We are part of the DVR Podcast Network. Check us out at dvrpodcast.com. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. My name is Mike. I'm the regular co-host of the weekly book reader Deep Dive with Tracy and Donald. So I've read all the books. I've seen all the shows multiple times. I've argued about all of your crackpot theories. Today, I'm doing a special show with Dr. Kelly DeVries, professor of medieval history at Loyola University, Maryland. What do I call you, uh, professor, doctor, Mr. D? (laughs) Kelly would be fine. Kelly works? (laughs) All right, very good. it works. Uh, you have a lot of books about medieval military technology um, and a book about Joan of Arc and a lot of stuff you've written, kind of articles and things. Apparently, you're doing a lot of interviews right now about Game of Thrones. How did you get interested in... I mean, it's kind of an esoteric topic, like, let's be honest, right? How yes. many professors of medieval military technology are there in the world? Well, I do. I mean, I, I broadly do medieval military technology and history. Uh, I think in part military technology has been generally um, done by or at least written up by arms and armor curators. Uh, and they do a very good job of it. Um, and also uh, reenactors who sometimes don't do a very good job of it. But uh, uh, to have a professor actually approach the things, and um, I've had a very good relationship with the Royal Armories in England, I'm a historical consultant, because they recognize that there's crossovers, that a historian has to be there with the artifacts, and the um, person who understands the artifacts has to be with the historian. So I've had a very good relationship with a number of people who are, have great expertise in this area, and it's been very fruitful. Uh, because, uh, I, you know, I know I've dressed in armor. I've slept overnight in the Tower of London. There's a whole bunch of different things that I've gotten to do. Uh, dressed in Henry VIII's armor, actually. Uh, wow. There's a whole bunch of things that I've, uh, you know, been able to do that I wouldn't have had I not, had I been just, a, you know, a historian that stuck his, his nose in books and didn't look at artifacts or places. Okay, what is the value of that then, outside of just like being a cool story to tell that you wore Henry well, armor? First of all, and it's a yeah, cool story, but it is a cool story, and uh, it, it's interesting. I was just in Greece with a couple of friends of mine who are um, um, both writers as well. One is a professor of English in the Citadel, Mike Livingston, and the other one is a writer of fantasy, uh, and uh, his name is Mike Cole. Mike uh, Livingston also writes fantasy, so we were over in Greece looking at battlefields because the, they're crossing over and writing a little bit on phalanx and legions, and you know we were talking back and forth about uh, about why we do things, and they were talking about monetary aspects, and I looked them in the eye and I said, "I love Greece. I come back as often as I can, and I do what I do so I can get back to Greece." Right. Uh, and that's been one of the one of the incentives is that. You know, if you do medieval history, apart from like American history or even apart from more conventional uh, English history or something along those lines, even if it's medieval, uh, you get to travel. You get to see some really impressive places. Uh, You get to commune with the old deities and the new deities and whatever you want. Um, And then you get to write it up um, in a historical sense. As long as you keep that in mind, then then, uh, you're fine. And if you don't, then you're writing fiction and that's fine, too. Hmm. But there's cross. I mean, that's an interesting thing. You're a fan of the show. Uh, do you read the books? 
Well, I'm less a fan of the books. I will say that they're long. <laughs> they're very uh-huh. long. They're behind. Um, I, I'm. I think that the Game of Thrones is one of these. Uh, uh, one of these titles. The, the let's say the the volumes that have come out. The whole the whole um, Ice and, and Fire. Um, that they are almost better on screen than they are as words. Um, Martin does a very good job of uh, describing everything. I'm not saying that. In fact, I think he's an, an, an awesome writer. I'm very jealous of his talents. Uh, but, you know, the he has also, uh, whether, I mean, I don't know how much he had involved in this, but the uh, people who have put, decided to put Game of Thrones on screen have done a marvelous job um, of, uh, making a, a universe that we can all disappear into. And every time I think that there's a, a lull in the show or that there's a plot hole, let's face it, there's several plot holes that have gone unfilled or, or, you know, plot directions that they've gone in and suddenly they have, uh, you know, um, decided, well, geez, that's not going anywhere. So we're going to cut it off. Um, Every time they've done that, and I thought, oh, well, there's a flaw. They come back with the next next episode and, and kind of correct that flaw or even, even take us to an action-filled sequence where you just forget that there was a flaw. Mm-hmm. So um, in in many ways, it's uh, you know, there are very few who can do both books that transfer to films well. Uh, and some that write books that don't transfer to films well. Good heavens, we know that, as you know, can be seen in this uh, recent Dark Tower uh, film, um, where the, you know, the books are tremendous and they blew it. And, and, uh, you know, so, um, I think that, that in the case of Martin, I would suggest that the, the TV show is better than the books. Now, now he's going to get mad at me, but, um, uh, but he's got incredible talent. I'm not saying that it just, it's nice to be able to, to have a very good TV show backing you up, backing yeah. your work. Well, especially with uh, with battle scenes, television can work at the pace of a heartbeat, where that's virtually impossible with a book. Yeah, and you know. and I mean, you don't always have to show all the battle sequences. I mean, they've done very well in the last couple of seasons with this, with their budget obviously improved, and they were able to get more extras, and they were able to get more uniform, uh, more outfits and armor and so forth and so on. Um, you know, I remember back in the TV show Rome, though, that where they didn't. I was just actually on the plains of Marcellus, and I was thinking about this. They never even showed that battle on on Rome. They have it effectively explained by Pompey to uh, Varanus and Polo uh, as Pompey is running away. And I thought, wow, okay, they did it. They, you know, without having the big budget, they still explained what happened mm-hmm. in, in a way that was well understood. Um, in Game of Thrones, of course, they've got the budget. They've they've done some things that you know that I would uh, that I laughed at a bit because I think that they were kind of crazy. But then they've uh, done other things that have been very very smart. Um, yeah, just yesterday I was talking with a friend. And he says, "Oh, I hated the fact that you know that uh, they had a a ballista out there and that that was powerful enough to go into the dragon." I said, "Well, you know, obviously it wasn't." Um, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say spoiler alert at this point, uh, no, but obviously, you know, we're talking at dragon... season four or uh, season seven, episode four. Okay, uh, we are current too. So if you haven't watched up to there, then get your life together. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that's right. Get your life together. <laughs> 
But the, uh, I mean, it obviously didn't work. But even then, when he was saying, well, he says, I can't imagine them never be able to hit anything like that. And I said, well, next time we're at the, uh, um, in the Middle Alter Center, at the mid medieval center in Nykoping, Denmark, which has some really good reproductions of these and do a very good job of reproducing all sorts of military technology. I said, I'll put you out in a field and I'll just take the, uh, the mounted crossbow ballista and... <laughs> You know, let's see, let's see how valid your theories are. <laughs> um, it's uh, you know those those sort of things. Again, we can we can laugh about and, and it, it was funny that I did a couple of interviews, of course, right after the Battle of the Bastards, and everybody says, "Oh, well, you know that was Ken A." And I go, "Well, no, it's more it's more a modern version of Ken A as then seen through you know the eyes of." the makers of a good TV show who are interpreting it just like any historian and interpreting the original sources. And this isn't exactly how everything happened, but well, let's um, talk about that a little bit. So Kane sure. was, and it's kind of every military strategist, like wet dream, right. To, to pull off the encirclement. Um, so talk a little bit about the actual historical battle. Uh, what happened as far as we know. Um, and also, you know, there's a kind of, and and kind of how you think they interpreted it. Do you think that's what they were going for? Or, you know, because it's not the only example in history, but it's certainly the most no, famous, no. right? And it's certainly not a, not a medieval example if, if you're going with the Middle Ages. And in fact, we're dealing with a whole bunch of things at Kenne that were not at a fair, including the elephant. Uh, at least one was around. Um, and... Uh, so, I mean, the battle can be explained very, very loosely because we only have uh, really two sources for it, and they're not, and they're written many, many years afterwards by people who, you know, may have used eyewitness accounts, but certainly um, don't weren't there themselves. And they describe that Hannibal, and using his troops, uh, came out and put weak troops in the middle. And then as those troops broke under the pressures of the Roman legions who were more powerful in the middle, he was able then to, to outflank both sides and crush them into, uh, into in, you know, push everybody into the middle and, um, and crush them between these two very strong wings of his infantry. Uh, and the legions couldn't do anything. They just they couldn't run. They couldn't do anything. That's the problem with having that type of encirclement. And ancient battle were notorious, especially these type of battles were notorious for not taking prisoners and not giving um, not giving away. And so there were very few people that came out. Um, the Roman armies were just destroyed. Uh, mind you, this is one of the things that's forgotten, and it 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 kind of came back this past week. Um, but the the toll on the Carthaginian army, on Hannibal's army there, was extraordinary. And so he was not ever able to take a city after that. And consequently, he he, he almost does what, you know, will, will actually happen um, with Pyrrhus, um, where Pyrrhus, you know, ultimately in the nation battle has to say, the guy comes up and congratulates and says, well, if I win any more of these battles, I'll lose the war. And he did. <laughs> Is that um, in this of all case, the people he lost in the middle, and all the people, yeah. And so the fact is, is that Hannibal, and being in the middle of Rome, is unable to to reinforce himself, and he doesn't have enough troops to take on the walled cities. And so he marches up and down the the boot of Italy for 
uh, more than a decade. Um, and, uh, and that's when the strategic importance of, uh, of Rome came into play and, and Scipio Africanus went and attacked um, Carthaginian holdings in Spain and then also in North Africa until Hannibal gets pulled back and faces defeat of the Battle of Zama. So there's a, you know, the, we, we forget that, you know, we get thrilled by this battle, but essentially it's a loss. Um, it's a victory, great victory on the battlefield. There's no doubt about it. Roman army is decimated. They can't really do much, but it's a loss because he can't really move out of that. Having won that battle means he cannot take those, those cities. So, um, we, we forget that to a certain extent. Now, they came back. One of the nice things about Game of Thrones is that they have taken into account how many losses Jon Snow suffered. And so now he cannot face. I mean, he has to have alliances. That's pushed him into this alliance with uh, Daenerys Targaryen. And I like that. I like the fact that there's that Game of Thrones has a big scope, bigger scope sometimes than most historians, um, and certainly bigger scope scopes than most fiction writers would suggest you know the right. size of battles the size of battles don't exist and or they don't exist very often and it's been nice to see that really you know all the battles have been fought in game of thrones and we don't have anything decided yet that's an interesting because a lot of times the way people talk about historical battle is not that they they usually talk about them as being more or less definitive up until say world war one you know, yeah, where no. people, armies could start to absorb a loss, right? But what you're saying is not so much that the battles themselves weren't decisive between the armies in the moment, but that right. they, the things, communication networks, and frankly, governing bodies were so kind of distant from each other that you could have a battle in one place, but it could be four years or more, right? There was this long yeah. buildup before yeah. there was another battle. And uh, so things or, were really undecided politically. Or before the campaign that that battle is a part of is effective. So mm -hmm. if you, um, and, you know, definitive, that's a whole different game. What we're talking about is decisive, which is, you know, this decides the, the whole thing. You know, mm -hmm. we have this illusion that one battle, um, um, won every war, but you know, if you go to the great battles of history, um, Marathon pushes the the Persians back, but it doesn't decide anything. Xerxes is back ten years later. If you look at, at Hastings, um, it does decide the battle. It does eventually decide who will rule in England. But William the Conqueror takes four years before he can um, get his troops to the north and and um, pacify it. Uh, you know, the great Mehmed the Conqueror who conquers, uh, who conquers Constantinople, won Constantinople, but he'd already won most of the Byzantine Empire before that. And even then, he loses at Belgrade uh, three years later and then loses at Rhodes on, on a, uh, in 1480. So he's not able to repeat those, and consequently, he's conqueror of one, but not the other two cities. So there's... And there are daily the, political machinations happening amongst his enemies, his friends, and even his family in every yeah, case. Well, especially in the Ottomans, yeah, that's the case. Um, but even in Henry V, you know, we we just celebrated Agincourt, and so many books right written about how great Agincourt was as a, as a victory, and it was. But the real victory for Henry is when he returns from 1417 to 1420, um, and he takes Normandy and the Maine and the Ile de France and then forces the Treaty of Troyes. So 
we have to think of this in the big context. And I'm, and I'm really appreciating that this year didn't come out and say, oh, Battle of Bastards, everything's decided. Hmm. Uh, that we, there really is this recognition and, and even the recognition that there are different enemies and the some way more important than importantly than others. So, you know, Jon Snow is more concerned about what, uh, you know, the zombies of the North than he is about Cersei Lannister and trying to convince Daenerys in this last episode. Well, I, I thought that was really effective because that's precisely how, how, um, pre-modern military history was decided most of them. Well, and I, yeah, I've seen you talk about, too, the, the kind of uh, difference between, like, George Martin being one of the first authors after Tolkien to really, like, uh, move, to, to toss away a lot of those elements um, and, and really, like, focus more on kind of the political element of it. Yeah, it seems like I that's guess what you're talking about. Well, I think I mean he's focusing on he's he's taking it over a larger uh, you know a larger um, context, very much like Tolkien did. And there's no question, you know, people say, oh well, you know, I mean, he's inspired by medieval history. I said he's inspired by Tolkien. Tolkien was a medievalist. <laughs> he was a medievalist of great standing, and he, you know, the uh, uh, but let's face it, the dragons are Tolkien's dragon um, in in Hobbit. The um, you know the the Zombies are some of the the wraiths, and you know this uh, and the armies of the dead and things like this are all coming out of Tolkien. Um, you know, I think all fantasy has to be a footnote to Tolkien, like all philosophy is a footnote to Aristotle. Um, and the, and so he he's smart enough to recognize that to, to, that there's a pattern out there, but I think he's also smart enough to recognize that he can do things like not have a good person. Um, not have anybody who's undeniably good. We haven't seen that until, well, Jon Snow has kind of, uh, kind of come out of that. But, you know, we spent the first how many years thinking Jon Snow knew nothing. So, um, you know, he wasn't able to develop. I remember sitting uh, about, no, it must have been at the middle of season two. And I was giving a speech at, uh, at a high society do, believe it or not. And, uh, on, on Charlemagne's elephant, of all things. And um, uh, this old lady, I mean, sitting next to me, I mean, she was, she, I, I'm 60 now. She must have been well in her late 80s and uh, very, very wealthy. And she was talking about, she had just gotten into Game of Thrones. And she said, uh, and turned to me and says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And she says, is anybody good? And I said, <laughs> well, maybe the dwarf, uh, you know, uh, Tyrion has got his good points, uh, while at the same time being morally um, pretty, uh, you know, um, pretty much akin to drink and, and sex and all these <laughs> other things. So, you know, maybe not more, uh, maybe not good in a context of, uh, of um, you know, a context of, of what we would see as all aspects of good, but he was the closest at that point. Uh, and he's remained. Now he's gotten a little bit better. So uh, I like the fact that George Martin, as an author, chose to kind of show everybody is just really, you know, shades of evil, and uh, and that it only is, you know, even Ned Stark beheads a boy for no particular important reason at the very beginning, um, and. Uh, so and I had to laugh. That actor's been killed in more different ways than <laughs> um, who played them. Um, but uh, uh, 
you know, it, I, I think that's great. Now, you know, do we have the equivalent of history of that? Well, maybe Genghis Khan, uh, but not, um, and, you know, there's a lot of times where you look at a whole, a whole, you know, whole range of people existing at the same time and saying, well, yeah, look, everybody's just shades of evil and that's pretty true. But there's, uh, you know, um, there are aspects I mean, it's hard then to look at a period of history and see all the evil that George has been able to put into us into his opening books and TV show. You, 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 uh, your article. You wrote an article for Foreign Affairs where you talked about. They basically, it sounded like, asked you how close it is to actual medieval history, and you said not very, and that that's the benefit of the show. And I think yeah. that that kind of goes with what we're talking about here about, you know, the different levels of motivation and personality um, for the characters, because that in a in a in a, you know, uh, exaggerated for television way, I think most people recognize. And that's part of what we like about it. Right. Is that none of us are really uh, white hat, black hat, you know, and even people who generally are beneficial in the world. I don't know how to say it. Living an, an upstanding life or whatever you want to right. say. I think most of them would say that they want to steal things and hit people and speed all the time. They just have <laughs> learned how to to control those, uh, those driving desires, right? So even if we don't act out uh, our feelings, we recognize them when we see people in our entertainment acting them out. So there's this interesting thing about that, that. The reality of that seems to be one of the really attractive things about the show. But that's not really what you were talking about. You were talking about the day-to-day life yeah, of I was talking, Westeros, yeah. right, yes. as like a society. And, and you know, the, it was fun. Um, Gideon Rose, uh, who's the editor of Foreign Affairs, uh, wrote me out of the blue and said, by the way, the you know, show's going to be filmed. And I would like you to write an article on this. And I was thinking, foreign affairs, you know, this elite political science journal um, out of New York City is though okay. He's talking um, about the sure. Dragon Show. Yeah, and uh, and he said, explained that his son was very uh, devotee of the books, and, I, and so I quickly read the first couple of them, and um, and and then I thought, well, yeah, okay, I like the books too, but uh, I I thought I always thought of this as kind of a joke. I mean, it's it's fiction. I want my fiction to be fiction. And I thought, you know, so my whole context was, well, you know, I'm, this isn't middle ages. The middle ages had what with all those peasants and, and that umbrella controlling church, uh, that, you know, had everybody pretty much controlled everything, um, politics and, and religion and society and everything else in the middle ages. Um, by and large, the middle ages was pretty boring. Um, and by and large, most people grew up, did what their father did and then died. And that was it. Um, life wasn't long. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't, it wasn't good. And every once in a while you got to go off where people told you that if you died, the next life would be better. Um, that doesn't make for a really good set of novels and, uh, certainly not fantasy. So throw some dragons in, throw a few zombies in. It still doesn't make for a really good <laughs> sense. So by, uh, you know, so all this came together and I, and I said, well, you know, I was, I didn't think it was too medieval and I was really glad because the middle ages being pretty boring, um, except to a few funny, duddy historians like myself, 
Uh, I want to see my fiction, even if it's set in the Middle Ages, I want to see it to be a little bit more exciting. And uh, um, yes, I wrote that article, and it, it, and I was talking principally about about day to day life. Uh, if you you know if you notice while they're wandering through the countryside, I mean, area wanders through the the um, countryside, and there's not a field tilled. I mean, the Middle Ages in Europe, there was forest and there were agricultural lands. Um, there were very, very little that was in between. Um, people had to eat. Well, nobody has to eat, evidently, until this last episode. Uh, and then suddenly we don't have enough grain around there. And you're uh, uh, looking at the TV going, well, get your peasants out there. Field. You know, Why don't you till those fields you've been walking through for most of these you've episodes? You've been harvesting uh, for seven years. You'd have something you've been harvesting for seven years. And, of course, that's a problem. If you look at, at, um, if you look at uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Tolkien trilogy when they filmed it, there's not – any agriculture that's going on. We do see peasants there fleeing to places like, uh, you know, the, the, um, the two towers to get protection. And, you know, there is that, there was this discussion, of course, this last episode too, about, well, we got to bring the peasants in. They've got to come in for protection and so forth. And you go, well, good. You know, maybe they can bring their food. <laughs> you know, maybe they should go out and till the fields first. You know, like you've got a grain shortage, but there might be an explanation for it. So it, uh, but you know, where they put it into the the film, and of course, or the TV show, and of course, leading up to the the wonderful battle sequence at the end of this last uh, at this last episode, where where you know the the reason for the army lagging behind is the slowness of the wagons. The wagons are filled with the grain, and now that's going to become a problem. All that worked in very nicely, but uh, no fields being tilled for the rest of the show. Yeah, it's interesting when they do actually add that stuff in because it feels so kind of like seamless and of a piece with the rest of it that it's weird that it's never come up before. You know, when it, well, when it finally it is, does yeah. arrive. We did have, you know, two peasants back in, in season one that were peasant boys that were, uh, you know, killed and burned. And so that they Miller's be, kids, yeah. Yeah, the Miller's kids. And, and they were the substitutes for the two youngest star kids um, or youngest star boys. And, and so, you know, we did have this kind of mention of peasants. And, and there are some wonderful scenes where they stop by the inns and so forth and so on. But this last episode, yeah, I mean, we had uh, – the hound and his group coming upon the the father and daughter that had died of starvation, and uh, because their fields had been completely destroyed, and and that's what happens with army. So we get, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that the way that they've been doing it, the writers now, uh, and of course, they're only working off of outlines um, from from um, Martin at this point, but they're. They're very adept at uh, at introducing complex issues into the show, uh, and and resolving them so that you can't look back and go, ah, oh, well, there there's a big hole. There's a big. Mm -hmm. hole. They... I mean, there are dragons, so you know, let's face it, <laughs> it's not a real medieval show. I hate to tell you, there's dragons. <laughs> hey guys, Matt here. You know, I used to say that I would never ever monetize podcast Winterfell because really I didn't need to. I had plenty of money to do it, and it was my passion. But the guys from the DVR Podcast Network, who have taken over Podcast Winterfell for me, decided to do a Patreon page because they're giving you more content each week than I have ever given you on Podcast Winterfell. And I really appreciate that the effort that they've gone through to do that. 
including interviews, including uh, three podcasts a week just covering the show, and maybe even more with a feedback podcast here or there as well. So you're getting a whole lot of content, and that's why it's worth it to go to patreon.com slash DVR and check out their pledge levels and make a pledge. I've done it. I am now a DVR Podcast Network patron, and I'm happy to get it because I get to hear some of the podcasts a little earlier than the rest of you do, perhaps. Also, I know that I'm going to continue to get even more great podcasts about other television shows by continuing to support the DVR Podcast Network. So quickly go to the DVR Podcast Network's Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash DVR, and pledge your support for Podcast Winterfell on any level, a dollar, three dollars, ten dollars. There's all kinds of neat little perks as well for you, depending on what level you pledge at. Thanks for listening to me babble. Take care. They, it's in, okay, so farming is a thing that we know we have a lot of contemporary evidence for and, and information about. We yeah. also have a lot of contemporary evidence and information for weaponry. Um, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, there's even institutes and places, especially in Europe, that are recreating a lot of these things, even like some of da Vinci's fanciful ideas. But yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, they really have to have to stretch those sometimes. <laughs> as i understand there, it there were no tanks da vinci tanks did not work just put it out there i've seen more <laughs> da vinci tanks in museums and everything else they did not work it does not work anyway not real we not don't real. how but from what i understand we really don't have much knowledge about the way medieval sword fighting worked broad sword fighting certainly not in the way that we do like the samurai tradition was kept up um, in a way, you know, not obviously kind of in an effective battle sense, but in sure. a, it became a tradition. It became almost a religious uh, practice. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you, in fact, you've got samurai, you know, you've got the, the practice of samurai fencing, from what we can tell, um, that goes, you know, the, before the meridian of time all the way down to the 19th century, uh, you know, teacher versus uh, teacher and student and so forth and so on. There are some in Europe that are trying to to do this. And we now have got, I mean, this is maybe one of the la- last um, areas of uh, medieval history that are finally being, you know, is finally being looked at by very capable historians and capable re- um, reenactors. Uh, you know, there's a young man in Switzerland, Daniel Jacquet, and he and others have created, um, and you can see him on, on YouTube, he, he'll race in armor, um, and he, he, you know, he does, uh, obstacle courses. Oh, is this the guy that like raced against like a a person in a Marine's uniform and all that? Yeah. That video was super cool. uh, Yeah. I beat the soldier and the fireman. And as he told me later, he says, and you know, both of them were 10 years younger than me. Uh, and he's, uh, he runs 10 K races and this and so forth, but he's a, he's got a PhD and he earnestly looks at, um, fencing manuals. He earnestly looks at what goes on and we've got a, um, so, you know, getting away from the, the creative anachronism where we're, you know, doing this stuff for fun, which is, and there's a good reason for that. I'm not, I'm not 
I'm not uh, casting aspersions on this, but getting into individuals who are really looking at the the artifacts and are uh, and looking at the manuscripts and are trying to duplicate this. We do have finding manuals that date from the late 14th uh, throughout the 15th century, quite a few of them, and into the 16th and 17th century. And some of them do talk about things like broad uh, broad. Well, we don't really call it broadsword, but sword combat, larger sword combat, um, and uh, um, even pole arm combat, um, okay. which uh, have been translated and which are out there. So we can get a sense that they there was schooling. Um, but this is a very different time. 14th, 15th century is a very different time. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why if you call it the Renaissance, you're not out of, you're, you're not wrong. Um, there are some lots of changes going, a lot, a lot more literacy in the 14th century, etc. So I'm not so sure you can take that back and deal with it. Um, and yet we know they did fight with swords. They fought very effectively with swords. We know it, it's like um, I was on a, a show a while back called Barbarian War uh, Weaponry for uh, the History Channel. And, you know, got, you know, talking about having stirrups and saying, oh, well, they couldn't have done the charges and having stirrups. Except they'd been charging on horses for 2,000 years up to that time. Uh, well, not quite, but um, um, almost, and uh, nobody fallen off. Uh, so <laughs> they're clearly stirrups became a very vital part of military technology, it, but it also became a crutch. It became a means of changing um, warfare, cavalry warfare at that point in time, and it made it for much more effective and much more powerful forms of fighting. So nobody's going to go back to what the Huns did, but the Huns didn't fall off their horses, let's face it. Right. They knew how to fight. And so we have to figure that that's the case. We have to figure that they were trained. We know that the Roman legions were trained in various aspects. We know gladiators were, changed in, uh, were trained in single combat aspects. So the idea that somehow um, gladiators could be trained, but Roman soldiers couldn't be trained in, in um, single combat. That's just ludicrous, even if we don't have any of the information. So as as historians, as, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad there's the reenactors out there. There's always going to be a big gap between what we actually know and um, but there it, it, that gap is closing more and more. And as long as we have great respect for for weapons, uh, for the artifacts, don't ex, don't um, exaggerate or minimalize the importance of certain you know of things that we actually have artifacts of. And at the same time, not not do the same with people. I mean, recognize and respect the um, pre-modern soldier, that he was capable of doing lots of stuff. And then at the same time, you know, don't exaggerate his, don't, you know, don't exaggerate what he was capable of, but don't also diminish what he was capable of. And as long as we, we look at that, and, and then you'll realize that, that the action that, that is being done here, um, in Game of Thrones, because we've got good choreographers, we've got respect for weapons, we've got real weapons being used out there, not, you know, the fake cardboard thingies. Um, this is, you know, this is, leads to some pretty interesting things. Is it history? No, but it tells us a lot more about what man was capable of back then as well as now. But there's a certain, like, if for an idea to really take hold, I feel like there has to be a certain amount of, like, the wheel. Like, if you've mm. never thought of the wheel, 
but you've been carrying stuff around your whole life, and then somebody shows you a wheel. Like, you know what I mean? You kind of take to it quickly, yeah. right? So, Well, not necessarily. I, think... I mean, there's going to be somebody who says, no, you know, a log is just as fine. <laughs> the fact that you've got a wheel, I can do with the log. Um, but there's a certain... A, a wheel. Stirrup certain... took probably two or 300 years. Gunpowder weapons become a very effective. We're over 150 years. So, um, you know, it's nothing is revolutionary in my estimation when it comes to military technology. I think it becomes very evolutionary. And it takes some time. There's going to be people with uh, traditional um, biases, cultural biases, um, certainly uh, in some of these cases. And then there's going to be be some who are going to welcome a change and recognize its, its superiority. There's also back steps. I mean, the Viking Carolingian swords were far better than later medieval swords. So why why was that the case? We don't know. At a certain moment in time, economics probably took over, and people said, well, you know, we can't have those uh, those type of swords anymore because they're too damn expensive. Um, and and that elements. seems – yeah, and, and that's an element we never think about. But economics – I guess I'm getting older because I started thinking about economics over <laughs> ideology. But uh, economics is important at for any you know aspect of history, what and there were something... decisions made. What about something like Damascus steel? Are there technologies like that that people kind of forget how to do? Or no, no, Damascus it's... steel was a uh, Damascus steel was good, and it was a, and and it was um, because the steel was stronger than steel that could be produced elsewhere. Um, and I don't know whether that was the ore uh, in in that part of the world initially. Uh, later on, things are called Damascus swords when they could never have gotten Damascus swords. Some people say, well, they were Damascene, which is not the case at all because they wouldn't have known what that was. But, it was, you know, a Damascus sword was not nearly as powerful as a Viking or Carolingian sword or the Ulfbert, one of those swords that is, you know, signed by the sword maker down the middle of the of the, uh, of the, the shaft. I mean, it's just uh, uh, those swords were incredibly powerful, incredibly strong and uh, made with you know, huge amounts of effort and very much more expensive than anything, even Damascus sword. So we've, you know, they would, it's interesting because I would come across things in, in medieval documents and they'll talk and they'll say, well, you know, get your sword from Bordeaux. And there's no other reason, you know, it just comes up. Why is Bordeaux swords all of a sudden better? And don't see it again. Now, it may just have been a fashion. It may have been something where there was a particularly good guy in Bordeaux uh, making swords at that period of time. We don't know. Uh, the, uh, so until we get actual industries being made, um, armor industries in Milan and Nuremberg, for example, Greenwich, um, or uh, gunpowder weapons being made in certain parts um, that are specific, and we can follow the industrialization of those. We really have to just guess uh, what what was the case. But again, we don't. We respect the the Smith in this case. Those Smiths knew what they were doing, and the better Smiths are going to make the best armor and, and arms. And those are the ones that the guys with the money are going to go to to have their arms and armor made. They knew their craft, and they also knew the quality of ore, and they knew the, um, that some iron ore was going to be made was going to be better for what they considered steel than other iron ore. Another iron ore would be good for maybe an arrowhead or a spearhead, but not for a sword, which needs to be a little bit more concentrated. Um, the same can be said about you know arm uh, iron that made male armor. Now, male armor was tremendous, thousand years. 
male armor is, is dominant. Uh, and then, but then when plate comes out, well, you know, they're making it with higher quality uh, steel and they're making full plates. It's a lot more expensive, and probably more protective, or at least as protective, a lot more stylish. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about military, the like evolution of weaponry like that, because as I understand the mix of eras, as far as weaponry in, in Game of Thrones is not realistic. They've got weapons from, you know, early medieval and late medieval yeah. being used yeah. by the same army. And well, they've got they've got Mongols out there with with. Uh, you know, the Wars of the Roses, so we're already mixing things up. <laughs> and they have dragons, by the way. Let me remind you of that. But that, like, but that, the fail... Okay, so there's the base... There's two things here. We've got the kind of the Battle of the Bastards, where you've got the the armies in formation, and they kind of start with their archers. Now, of course, in that scene, it all gets messed up by little Rickon, who's had no purpose <laughs> but to mess things up in the whole show. But... Yeah. In the in 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 concept, when the when the scene starts, you've got your two armies in formation. You start with archers. Your infantry starts working at, theoretically after the archers are done shooting, really. And you've got the hand to hand, and then you've got your cavalry uh, on horses, which are kind of moving around as need be. And then Ooh. you've got in this in the episode we just saw, season seven, episode four. You've got another kind of uh, battle lineup with a long history in human affairs, which is the phalanx setup, the kind of wall well, of shield shields. Wall. Yeah, right? that wasn't phalanx as much. Uh, shield wall is very different from what the phalanx had. The phalanx was a, a, a more of a of a, a inter. Um, it's both an offensive and a defensive formation. In this case, this was only defensive. Uh, shield walls. So um, you're right. But they both and, feature uh, that 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 front of shields and the spears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as opposed walls. to right, as opposed to the barbarian invasion. Let's just what it would be called historically, mm-hmm. where yeah. they're more kind of just a sea of individual fighters uh, and less organized in that way. Those two things both have a deep historical right. reservoir, right? Well, they they do, but on the same at the same time they didn't disappear. So uh, shield walls are persistent throughout the Middle Ages until really shields kind of dissolve. But um, you know, pavises are made are come into fashion in the 14th century, 13th century in Italy, and 14th century because they can be overlapped and made into a field fortification. So they're still using the the shields as a shield wall that late. See, we, we the only thing that that hold us back on, you know, the, well, no, let me back up one. It, to claim that something is primitive or to claim that something is old fashioned is to misunderstand how weapons were used and how various things were used all the way through uh, the middle ages and, and really through pre-modern. There are certain things of course that are, that disappear. And I'm not going to suggest somebody said to me, well, you know, the, uh, a Greek, um, phalangite would feel completely comfortable on a uh, on a medieval battlefield. And I said, "Yeah," and the medieval knight would look at his bronze breastplate and say, "Oh, this is going to be fun," uh, <laughs> because an iron tipped uh, an iron tipped uh, lance head carried forward with mounted shot combat again would have gone right through any bronze uh, breastplate. Let me tell you, and uh, um, you know, so there's this concept that somehow before the modern or before gunpowder or whatever that we have this uh, you know we have this this complete um you know lack of um, uh, 
uh, a lack of understanding of the weapons, lack of understanding of, of tactics, and so forth and so on. That just didn't happen. Um, the weapons were very good, and they were placed, and you know, they evolved. And sometimes things were changed because of economics, no doubt. The same thing with fortifications, uh, which are, of course, just larger, we- uh, larger defensive weapons and, and uh, uh, fortifications or, and shields. But um, all of those, you know, existed throughout the Middle Ages, and they pretty well existed. I mean, things went out of fashion. Um, things were proven to be less effective than other. Certainly, you know, eventually everybody's using stirrups, but that didn't take off immediately. So there, there isn't anything that can be said to be, you know, really primitive or out of fashion or whatever. And, you know, the, the obsessives on the Game of Thrones, the obsessives on, on uh, say, Rome will point out, well, they, those are different shields than they had at that period of time. Well, that's true. Um, except maybe they weren't, you know, we, we don't exactly know how well they were, you know, how, you know, did they throw something away? Did whatever um, happen? There are changes that go on. There are improvements. Sometimes, as I said, there are um, steps backward, but it, you know, um, to criticize the show for having a diversity of arms and armor on a battlefield is to criticize history because there was always a diversity of arms and armor on a battlefield. Um, until we go back, even in the Roman legion, the legions would have maybe very specified, very, very um, regulated arms and armor. But their allies and their uh, their support troops would not. So diversity of arms and armor, yeah, very historical. You mentioned mercenary armies there. Let's talk about that a little bit, because the idea of the national army wasn't really a thing. And right, so a lot of the armies at this time were essentially the kind of family fighting forces, and that's very much how we see it here. We just saw the Lannister army get destroyed, right. not the Westerosi National Marine Corps. Right? It was the land. They all, and then they were with the Tarly. Right? But they're all family armies that have gathered together. So, and then we have what are called cell swords in the book, you know, the, right. uh, the golden company and stuff like that. So how historically accurate is that? Is that kind of, does well, it, I think, it's, I think it's pretty historically accurate for all times, even down to now. Uh, I was talking in the midst of the Iraqi wars a decade ago, I was talking to a captain and, um, he, you know, he was just heading back to Iraq and, uh, we were talking about it and he says that the last firefight he was in, he, he looked over and one of his guys, you know, didn't know what he was doing with his gun and he couldn't understand. He went over and the guy looked at him and says, I, I'm the night manager of Walmart. And the oh. poor guy was a weekend warrior. He was a, a member of the national guard and he got thrust in Afghanistan. So the idea that we have, you know, these forces that are going from, from, uh, elite to um, basic, to militia, and then we've got others who are elite that are selling their, their um, sort. That that has been going on throughout time and will continue to go on. Uh, we had a, a tons. We were paying tons of mercenaries in, in our recent wars, um, the U.S. wars. And uh, that's just, just what happens. It's a job. And uh, um, a lot of people who are good at it and who don't see that there were don't see the possibility of returning to a humdrum life uh, 
they'll seek out uh, financial um, uh, you know means to continue into that until they die and that's you know for whatever reason that that's the life they've chosen and for whatever reason we've kept wars going on so they can be funded constantly so in, in you know in this case uh, Martin does fairly well the TV show has done fairly well we clearly have the elite forces and there is always I won't call it a national force because that's a, a loaded term, but there's always a professional force that's going to be around any lord. There's his retinue, and they are full-time. They're trained. They provide him bodyguard. They go to war when he does and so forth and so on. So there's always that, and we can call him familial and oriented. We can do whatever. Look at him and in, 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 you know, use a term that's becoming very old-fashioned, feudal. Uh, they're obliged uh, by money. They get paid. Um, so as long as we recognize that those aren't mercenaries, they're professional troops, and everybody's had them since the time immemorial, uh, we'll recognize that um, uh, or that doesn't change. Um, and it doesn't change to have less professional troops that are called up um, for you know, duty, uh, generally to defend the lands or called into service by a selective uh, service board uh, when I was a kid, um, a draft. And then there are those who are the National Guard, who are militias, and they get called in very specific reasons, very specific. They're less well-armed, they're less well-armored, and so forth. And in Iraq, every single one of our professional troops had Kevlar from top to bottom. None of our National Guardsmen did. So the state doesn't even care as much. It's a lot more expensive to lose a, a, um, a professional soldier than it is to lose a, a militiaman. And uh, that's how it's been viewed all the way through history. So that doesn't change. And I think it's very important. Mercenaries, we don't like talking about them now. There are probably more mercenaries now in the world than there have ever been before. Uh, and they fight in different conflicts. Good Lord, we've got tons of them. And uh, um, they no longer fit perhaps the definition they did in the in pre-modern world where you know, if you were willing to sell your, your military services, then you became a mercenary. And sometimes you sold them, if the market was rough, you had a lot of competition. You sold them for three meals a day. Sometimes you sold them, for example, in the Italian Renaissance, um, for various Italian cities and made bundles and bundles of money. Uh, so that that is, again, very historical. And one of the things I think that, that works effectively, again, is while you might see a diversity of of arms and armor on the battlefield, you're going to see a diversity of of, um, of expertise on the battlefield, training, professionalism, and so forth. All right, one last thing, we got to talk about Joan of Arc. You wrote a whole book about Joan of Arc. Yeah, she's great. And uh, that, so there's that's kind of the closest thing people can really compare Danny to, right? This yeah. Yeah. Joan was 16 and she goes well, to go ahead. I mean, you tell the no, story better than I do. You wrote a book was, about uh, it. She was probably no older than 17, but she may have been as old as 19. We actually don't know the date of her birth. We can assume it, but she was never asked in the trial. So I, I'm sorry. That was an esoteric, stupid thing to make. Dude, you no, wrote a whole but, book about it. Who else? Yeah, to I know. Give me esoteric facts. <laughs> that probably gets closer to that type of minutia. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first time, and it may have been on the HBO show, Historical Connections, I was on, that, um, you know, they brought up Joan of Arc as a comparative for Daenerys. And I said, you know, I, I was taken aback. And I, you know, the first thing that came out of my mind is, well, yeah, one walked out of the fire, one didn't. 
Oh, uh, so um, that's a big historical difference, uh, you know. Um, and um, Daenerys goes into the fire not as you know. I mean, the one the one big difference between the George Barnes books and Middle Ages is there's no church really. We've not seen any religious aspect. Lord of Light, all that bullshit is is out in the background. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. No, no, we're on the internet. You can say whatever you want. Okay, okay. Oh, geez, I would have had a much more fun in this interview. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, uh, but, you know, there's and, and there's religious fanatics and things like that. But in the Middle Ages, there was one controlling church, and it controlled all aspects. Joan of Arc is, you know, essentially martyred by that church. Now, I love bringing that up to my, my Jesuit colleagues when I point out that she's the first saint ever made who was martyred by the church that made her a saint. And uh, and the fact is that that becomes an issue, and the Pope refuses to say she's a martyr, so she's not made a saint of being a martyr. Um, but she doesn't walk out of the flame. But I was, you know, and, and so I kind of uh, I rejected that almost immediately. I said, well, okay, I can see, you know, we've got two women, two flames. That's it. Uh, there's a connection. But the one thing, and you know, I, I, one of the things that's always impressed me with Joan, because I'm not a believer in beauty, and uh, so. It doesn't really matter to me whether she heard voices or not. It's the fact that she believed she did, and people around her believed she did. It was more important that um, that's more important for a historical uh, sense than whether she did or did not hear them. Because if she did or did not, it didn't matter. But if she convinces, so she convinces all these men, especially men who were tired of having been, you know, having lost and the defeatism of Agincourt was still very, very active in, in 1429 when Joan rises, uh, rises up as a, as a leader of the French army. Uh, she inspires people in a way that is beyond um, understanding, I think, unless you recognize that she had this religious fanaticism about her and others then recognize that if she was right and then she was winning, so she must have been right, then they had a deity on their side. And, you know, we go back to, I was just, like I said, in Greece, I, you go back to the Iliad, if you've got a deity on your side, you're doing fairly well. Uh, problem in Iliad is you've got deities on both sides. Um, in the, you know, with Joan, there becomes a, a point that I think you can see where the English, especially by the time they get to the trial, are worried. Because if Joan, you know, is winning and if God is on her side, it means God, God is not on their side. Right. Now, if Zero you, sum. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, then, then you got a problem because how are you going to convince your troops to stay with you if you are, are going to suggest that God is not, uh, not with them? Uh, so uh, if you remove the religious aspect, you still have this devotion to a female leader, the Joan experience that is very similar to what Daenerys Targaryen is. And they've really built on that, um, this, especially this last episode, when Jon Snow, who has this similar kind of uh, falling, following, um, that, you know, the two of them are really comparing cards in this regard. And they, they kind of recognize that, you know, they'd be very ineffective leaders if they didn't have a charisma to, to gather leaders around them, if they didn't have people believe on their on them as leaders. And that's pretty much what Joan did um, in the single year that she was in, in military leadership in France. She was never the general of the army, but she was certainly a leader. Um, 
she inspired amazing things and she inspired great victories. And she did overstep on a couple of occasions and uh, she was wounded twice, very harshly both times. And yet, you know, she inspired men. And these are hardened military men who would never have followed a woman if somebody had, had woken them up and said, okay, we've got a woman out here, will you follow her? They would never have done that. There had to be some inspiration. And that's similar to what I see Daenerys Targaryen having. Wow. All right. Uh, one last question, and then I'm going to let sure. you go. You've been really generous with me. Uh, I really no, appreciate it's, this it, afternoon. It's always it's fun. Great. What uh, are there any like weird little things that they've gotten right or wrong that none of us would ever notice? I mean, what is it that like? Because you keep you talk about the entertainment aspect right. of it, you know, yeah. and and everybody needs a little bit of escapism in this world we're in, right? It's nice to watch right. the dragons burn things up and it have no con literally no consequences in my life. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I can just yeah. enjoy it for what it is, you know. I'm still going to eat. There's still crops in in uh, the United States. So, is there any like little weird historical thing that takes you out of that escapist moment that they either right or wrong? Well, some of it does. I mean, uh, the the as I mentioned, as boring as it might be to other people, this whole question about logistics and the whole question about how much grain is needed in the in a, in a castle to protect the castle and the people and what happens. I mean, that is always a, a problem, and there gets to be situations in long sieges like at um, Calais in thirty forty seven forty uh, thirty forty six forty seven that where useless mouths, as they were called, were thrown out because they, they were coming to a point where they had to make sure and feed the soldiers. Uh, and so, you know, the, I, I thought that was great. And I probably if you went and, and everybody said, oh, well, that was only to set up the dragons burning all those wagons. Again. Uh, and sure, that looked nice to have a couple <laughs> of horses pulling, you know, burning wagon behind them. That's a, a nice uh, entertaining effect. But the, uh, you know, so that, that that look at this aspect of what's going on, um, I think is is uh, is pretty good. I mean, um, you know, there's some things I think they've gone too far with the exchange of faces for the assassins. Um, the assassins themselves, real assassins themselves, were a very interesting bunch in their own right. Um, and but nobody exchanged faces, you know, um, dragons and zombies <laughs> and other things are what is there for entertaining. But if you can have, you know, discussions about grain supplies, if you can have discussions about, uh, um, you know, about, well, I mean, the one, the, the horse that lost his leg this last time, you know, what's mm -hmm. going to happen in those situations. Even the original charge on this, on the shield wall by the, uh, by a, um, the Dothraki was great because they didn't break through. And that's what happened. Uh, horses do not charge through men um, if there is nowhere to go. They have to stop, um, and they do. Uh, never find them playing football, in other words. But um, <laughs> they, they showed that. And then they showed the line being opened by the dragons, and then the men point through just gaps. The horses point through just gaps. Now, whether they had that specifically set that way or whether it's just that's the nature of horses, um, those are little bits and pieces that I think, oh, well. So, you know, guess what I'm going to be showing the students um, this this term when I'm teaching medieval military history and I'm talking about, you know, what cavalry charge did and why it was that, because uh, I wrote another book on early infantry warfare in the 14th century where infantry start beating cavalry. Why? 
because they stay solid and the horses can't go anywhere. So it's nice to see that uh, that this that happened here. Um, it's happened in Braveheart and the Kingdom of Heaven as well, where horses are shown being stopped by by overlapping shields. But it was nice, a nice little touch. Yeah. This is great stuff, man. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Kelly. Thank you. Uh, do you have an internet presence you'd like to talk about if people want to <laughs> buy your new I, books? And I'm stuff? on the internet. How's that? I don't know. <laughs> that um, works for me. I was I was very surprised. It was interesting to see how better Wikipedia became in my mind when I when somebody put a page up for me. Uh, <laughs> so you know, but I don't Twitter and you know Facebook periodically, but. Um, it's but both, you do uh, have books, and you have, yes, have articles books. coming out, and other interviews you're going to be doing, and stuff. So we'll be able to uh, link to to various other people who do a little more interneting than you do, uh, yes. and still be able to find your words. So yeah, um, and you know, I've been very great, uh, grateful when I heard um, when the HBO um, contacted me and and uh, asked me to be on the historical connections and told me that George Martin enjoyed some of the things I'd written and. Uh, um, and are, you know, and what had been influenced by some of the things that I wrote. So I'm very, I'm very grateful when, when things that I think I did, you know, to get me back to Greece, so to speak, um, also seems to have influenced some people in their education of, uh, medieval military history, military technology. I think, uh, the show that we all love is better off for it, obviously. So, well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Kelly DeVries. This has been Podcast Winterfell. Uh, stick around, podcastwinterfell.com or podcastwinterfell at gmail.com if you want to tell us your story about when you went to a battlefield in Greece or got to wear Henry VIII's armor. If you have that story, send us an email. I want to hear it. Thank you for listening to Podcast Winterfell. You can find the podcast at dvrpodcast.com. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash dvr. You can email the podcast, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at WinterfellPod and on Facebook, Podcast Winterfell. Call recording has been completed.